When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with humanities scholar and author Stephen Greenblatt. He's the Kogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University, general editor of the Norton Anthology of English Literature, and the author of 13 books, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. His latest book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, traces the cultural history of that most primal of stories about a man, a woman, God, and a snake. It's a couple thousand years old and only about two pages long, but it's still exerting a powerful cultural influence on us today. Welcome to Think Again, Stephen. Thank you, Jason. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and it, it sent me scurrying back to my Bible uh, to read the story, which I was, I was amazed to remember is indeed very, very brief, very compact, and greatly lacking in much detail, you know? Oh, that is true. <laughs> uh, it's over before it begins, it seems. Let's start with that just a little bit. I mean, first of all, one thing that surprised me in revisiting the tale, you know, the fact that the snake is not explicitly associated in any way with Satan or anything that we think of as Satan in this. It's a snake. It's a snake. Uh, it happens to be a talking snake. Right. Uh, but it's a snake. Uh, there's no backstory as to why the snake got there. Right. Uh, a backstory of the kind that eventually. Uh, the Christians uh, elaborated on, the Muslims also uh, through uh, Iblis uh, elaborated on, though they uh, have a, a camel in part, it's one of the Muslim accounts rather than a snake. But in any case, there seems to be something missing from the story, but there are many things missing from the story, such as an explanation for what the hell the snake is doing there. Right. But it also, as you say, is over very quickly. There were lots of speculations from a very long time ago about how long Adam and Eve were there in the garden before this happened, and right. the argument, one argument was made is that it all happened in an afternoon, basically. They weren't there even a whole day. I mean, the way it's written, it's as if there are two creation stories kind of jammed together. I mean, first you get God creates, you know, the, the, the world, he, you know, uh, there's darkness, and then he separates basically the heavenly firmament from the earth, and then, and then you have the creation. It sort of goes through the creation of all things, including humans, and then it returns to the story of, of Adam and Eve. Those are as if it were two separate this is, sources this squished is true. together. I mean, or it actually is uh, very strange because the, uh, the first account right. uh, says when they get to the humans, male and female created he them, uh, to take the King James translation, which means that the, it sounds like either the man and the male and the female were created at the same moment, or there was a single creature and it was a hermaphrodite. Right. Uh, and that was a, car a current of speculation. But then when you get the 
next version of it, you're suddenly in a different place in a, in a story involving the male being created out of dust first, the female being created subsequently in the garden from the rib, and they're in a relationship with each other and with the, with the now notorious snake. Right. Uh, but, but that seems to be a different thing. But the key first step we should take, Jason, is to say that for thousands of years, the notion that there were two different stories was not actually on the table. Right. There were some, a very few people who, who had that intuition or were willing to speculate about this. But for one thing, it was dangerous to suggest such a thing because you could get punished sure. for, uh, for it. But, but also there were strong cognitive reasons to try to think that it was a single account because we call them the five books of Moses and lots of people believed that, uh, that this was, the entire thing was written by one person, Moses either by himself or at dictation from an angel or from the Holy Spirit or something. In right, any case, right, right. Uh, it, it, there was a presumption that it was a single account. I, I want to um, ask, you, you start early on in your book, you, you tell a story um, that maybe, maybe you could share because I think it tells us a lot about you know, what you're trying to express in, in, in writing this cultural history of Adam and Eve about little Stephen Greenblatt sitting in temple Right, yes. and you were to, maybe you could share this story. Well, I wasn't Stephen Greenblatt then. I was certainly Stevie Greenblatt. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, and I was indeed when I was whatever it was, five years old, sitting in temple, and I'd been told by my parents that during the uh, blessings, the priestly blessings that are at the end of the service, I should bow my head. Right, and the explanation was that God passed through the synagogue at that point, and you couldn't see God face to face, or, or lest you die. Right, uh, and uh, that was a good incentive to keep your head down. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, uh, I felt that it would be incredible to see God. Right. That in fact it might be the single most wonderful thing you could possibly see, and uh, so I thought well, it might be worth it. And though I mused on this uh, for, for, it took a while, I mused on it for weeks, uh, not daring to tell my parents because I knew they wouldn't allow me to, but I finally decided, yes, it was worth it, and I would raise my head and die, but before <laughs> I died, I would see God. And I raised my head finally, slowly, slowly, one Saturday morning, and uh, lo and behold, uh, there was only emptiness above my head. Not only that, but I saw that actually I was one of the few people with my head clearly down. Other people were waving to each other saying, I'll beat you afterwards right. or whatever. I mean, that. Right. so I had an overwhelming feeling they've been lying to me. And I would say in some sense, I never quite get over that feeling, but I never returned, let's put it that way, to the pure faith for which I was willing to die. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I did get over the feeling in the sense that it's not only a history of, my relation to this is not only a history of disillusionment, something like the opposite. I'm fascinated by the stories that we tell, by the dreams that we have, by the longing to see things that aren't there. And indeed, I even understand that, that behind that particular story, after all, doesn't require very subtle uh, thinking to realize that, well, you could say that God was in fact everywhere and, and so forth and so on. But I somehow shuttle back and forth between, between my disillusioned, they're lying to me right. moment, and my sense, look, this is what human beings do. They tell themselves these stories, not simply to, to manipulate small children, keep them from fidgeting, right. uh, but because it's a way of understanding 
what really matters in the world. Uh, it's a way of trying to, to touch what is meaningful, luminous in the universe. And though I, I'm not, I confess to you, I'm not much of a believer, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a believer in stories. And there's, and there's, I mean, and there's something in that, though, in your experience there with, with that story that connects with the way that this story of Adam and Eve, like how humanity's relationship with it over time, that sort of the hope that it's true, the wondering how it might be true, in what way exactly is it true? Well, I'll come back to what you've just asked, yeah. but one small link between the story I just told about myself, which is of no great consequence, and the great story of of Adam and Eve is how could they possibly have known what death was? Right. When God says to them, don't eat of this fruit lest you die, it didn't, as far as the Bible allows you to understand, give them any very full explanation, in fact, any explanation of what on earth he meant. And since there was no death up to that point as far as in the garden, they couldn't possibly have known what it was. So I somehow imagine Adam having heard this warning, saying to himself, what did he say? Or, I mean, I, I must ask him next time we have a conversation, what do you mean, lest we die? What is that? Uh, in any case, they can't have been much beyond my five-year-old state of not really knowing. I, I, was, I understood from the, the warning that there was something bad, but would I have known what, how bad bad was? Right, no. and this is something that confuses <laughs> me, I have to say, in the story, right? So you've got, you know, you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the one that they're forbidden to eat from, and then you also have the tree of eternal life, right? Yes. And so they're forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means that presumably they're sort of morally innocent. They're unable to distinguish good, good from evil. They, they eat from it, and then, but then somehow mortality enters into that as well. Surely you shall die, meaning that they would have been immortal had they not eaten from it. But then what's the tree of eternal life for? Well, this, this was, as you can imagine, with every <laughs> one of these things, this is the object of an enormous <laughs> right, right. body of commentary. Right, right, right. Uh, but one strain of that commentary would be that they wouldn't have been immortal, but they could have eaten of this tree of life. And indeed, the Bible seems to give credence to that account because God says, when God expels them from the garden, he says he does so. It's not clear whom he's addressing, but he says we have to get them out of here, basically, right. whoever the we is. We have to get them out of here, lest they eat of the tree of, of life and live forever. I mean, so that the, that, would, that would suggest that now that they've they made eaten, a terrible mistake right. not to eat first of that damn tree right, of life. Right, they right, would have right, lived right, forever. Right. I mean, we would have lived forever, but in any case, they didn't do it. So, the, so the knowledge of good and evil would somehow then enlighten them or make them aware sufficiently to then understand what the tree of eternal, the tree ah, of life is well, for. Well, that's a clever variant on this. I hadn't thought of that as an explanation. I no, no, I hadn't, I, hadn't, you were I hadn't encountered that, but it makes total sense that, that, right. uh, that they would have known that evil was, was to die and therefore they should quickly go and grab that, some of that <laughs> right, fruit right, from right, that right. tree. In any case, there is a, there's a profound and interesting debate, I think, uh, quite early on as to whether dying was part of the natural order of things or not. There were people who believed, and the story, for the reasons that you've just articulated, the story allows you to believe that setting the tree of life aside, that death might have been part of the natural order of things. But there was a, right. another very strong strain, in a way the dominant strain, that suggests, as you also proposed, that we would have lived forever had we not eaten from that tree. Right. So in other words, 
there are two different accounts for what our destiny was. There was one that, how should we say, accords with everything we know about living creatures, which is that they die. One strange rabbinical speculation is that before they, they were expelled, Adam and Eve rushed around feeding those, the, that transgressive fruit to all the other animals so that they would die as well. And they right. didn't get to, they simply missed one creature, the phoenix, which is why phoenix is, the phoenix keeps renewing itself and okay. lives forever. But there was a theory that the animals that did die, either they did depending on how long Adam and Eve were there, or in any case they were intended to go outside of the garden to die so that the garden wouldn't be full of corpses. Right. Uh, that was one okay. uh, line of speculation. The death was natural. But there's an alternative account in which they say the dominant one, that death is not natural, that death is a punishment. And you can see that the stakes are very high in terms of thinking about how over hundreds, thousands of years, people thought about their dying, whether they think it's natural or not. Because I'm an American in the 21st century, I've imbibed the notion that somehow maybe death isn't natural, that if I only eat the, enough kale, <laughs> uh, I will live forever. Right. Uh, but on the whole, most of us grasp that no matter what we do, there's probably an end point, and uh, we're going to have to, to check out. So the idea of death as a, as a punishment I read um, Gilgamesh after, oh, yeah. the, after reading your book, because I hadn't read it before, uh, of talking about the way that Gilgamesh, which is a Babylonian myth, deals with some of these same features, the yes. idea of a helper, the idea of, of, of mortality, in very different ways, and how the Jews were probably ex almost certainly exposed to that during the Babylonian captivity before the books of Moses were written. Yeah. Yes, the Jews had almost a century of living in Babylon. Of course, many Jews remained in Mesopotamia after, some, after other Jews went back under Cyrus to uh, where they were allowed to return to Jerusalem. But in any case, for yeah. the better part of a century, Jews ha uh, were fed a steady dose, we can be sure, of uh, Babylonian, whether they wanted to have it or not, right. of Babylonian uh, accounts of the world. And the, we can be also reasonably sure that curious or sophisticated Jews understood quite a lot about the Babylonian uh, worldview. Aramaic was the language, the language of the street in Babylon, and it happens right. to be the language of the street for the Hebrews as well. Okay. Uh, there's other ways of being absolutely sure that there's an interplay between the two of them, the single biggest piece of which is that the Noah story is, is basically pinched directly yeah, yeah, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, from the Babylonian materials. From the Enuma Elish. From the Enuma, well, actually from the Atrahasis. Atrahasis, uh, right, yeah. the flood myth. Okay, yeah. right, right, right. Um, I did also pick up the Enuma Elish, which is uh, slightly harder to yeah, read. Yeah, a little bit of a slog. There's <laughs> just incest and murder one after another. It's hard to keep track of who's committing incest with whom. Indeed. Um, but, but, so, but Gilgamesh deals with, you know, it deals with mortality differently. Gilgamesh, who's been basically raping all of the right. uh, women in Uruk, uh, and maybe the men as well. I mean, he seems to be in any case out of control. Right. They pray for help, uh, and they get help from the gods in the form of a creature made from clay right. and, and uh, uh, animated, uh, namely a wild creature named, a man named Enkidu, uh, who appears to have hair all over his body and who runs with antelopes or, uh, right. uh, out in the... And, then it's a it's a kind of slightly shaggy dog story. I mean, the, yes, a local yes. hunter complains that that someone is releasing these antelopes from his trap traps. They find that it's this wild man who's running around with the with these creatures, and right. so they then create they then send a 
temple prostitute to have days and nights of sex with Enkidu, at the right. end of which Enkidu finds that the animals are running away from him. He can no longer keep up with them, and they're running away from him. Right. And he's horrified, but she actually, the remarkable temple prostitute is a force for good, tells him, no, no, you're... Shamhat. You, Shamhat. Yeah. You look like a god now. You just must learn how to drink beer, uh, how to eat properly, <laughs> right. how to behave yourself, how to dress. And he loses, either rubs off or loses somehow the hair on his body, and he becomes, as it were, presentable. And then he's taken to Uruk, right. and he has an enormous fight with Gilgamesh. They sh the walls of the city shake, at the end of which they basically give each other high fives and it becomes a buddy movie. I mean, right, 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 right. <laughs> right. A, a bromance. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and as you write, you know, so, so Enkidu, you know, becomes human in a sense through sex, whereas Adam and Eve, in a sense, become human by, through their transgression. Yeah, so and the dream, and here the dream is to get to the city. Right. Not, the dream is not to be in the perfect garden, right. living with the other animals. It's actually to arrive at what actually the Mesopotamians had created as a new phenomenon, a city. They right, were, they right. Were, and which is, a world of, which is a world of artifice, and, right? yes. and so then and in the garden myth, it's more of a, you know, the, it sets us up for a different kind of tension, the sense that, that the world of artis, artifice, the man-made world, as it were, the one we have to make on our own, is a punishment, is yes. the result of sin, and is a bad thing, and that you know our animal nature, perhaps, or if you can call our animal nature what we were before we were cast out, is, is what's good, right? Yes. There were always people, one of the things that makes religion in general interesting right. is that there are always people who, who say the opposite thing, uh, even right. from within it. So there were people already in the rabbinical tradition, though I don't know the Islamic tradition well enough to say, but I assume there were as well, who, who said that it wasn't all disaster, who said that, that actually what lies on the other side of the expulsion of the garden was a good thing. So you get very early rabbi saying in response to a, a skeptic who says, so if, if uh, Jews are so great, how come Adam wasn't circumcised? How come he was created with a foreskin? Okay. And the, the rabbi says, well, wait, it, perfection is not created immediately. It takes a while. Now, that means the rabbi thought that, that there was something that lay on the other side of the uh, expulsion scene that somehow Abraham was superior to Adam. That's somehow buried in the whole tradition. And you, you can find comparable moments, I think, they're minority voices, but in Christianity as well, these are complicated arguments. But the larger mm -hmm. framework mm -hmm. is exactly as you say, that for the Mesopotamian mythology around Gilgamesh, the city is the great good place, the tower is the great good place, mm. the, the thing that the Hebrews condemn as the, the Tower Ziggurat, of Babel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I, sex is the great civilizer uh, rather than the mark of trouble. Uh, and the deepest, deepest thing that you can do is to come to, the most important thing you can do is to come to terms with death, not as punishment, mm. but as the consequence of being alive. And that's the thing that is most, most profound about Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh goes into a tremendous state of mourning for his friend when the friend dies. Right. And the friend, when he's dying, curses Shamhat, the temple prostitute, for causing this and so on and so on. But the point of the work is to make you come to terms with the fact that no, this is the natural state of things. Gilgamesh himself will die. This is the case. Uh, you have to deal with this, and what you need to do in the meanwhile is take 
keep yourself clean, bathe yourself, right. uh, love people, take care of your children, and live a good life. And Gilgamesh in denial even goes and tries to get the secret of eternal life. He does, from... and fascinatingly, a snake t seals it away from right, him. Right. So we're somehow in the orbit, even there, weirdly enough, of whatever it was that the Hebrews were also thinking about, actually thousands of years later, because this story, Gilgamesh, goes way, way back. We don't know how far back the Hebrew story goes. And you talk a lot about the influence of St. Augustine, and in particular, like, you know, you, I, I don't know that you explicitly say it, but it seems pretty clear. Like, he had, he, had a, he had a strange experience early on with his father. They went to a Roman bath, and, 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 and there's something around Augustine's sexuality and his relation to sexuality that seems to color what feels like the same kind of Cartesian mind-body problem, you know, like with respect to the fall, the idea that, that it is sexuality, that it is tied up with the baseness of flesh or something. One of the things that's remarkable about Augustine, but it's remarkable really of, of several of the other key figures, all the key figures that I talk about in my book, is that for, for these figures, Augustine, for Albrecht Dürer, for Milton, for other figures for, who changed the whole course of the Adam and Eve story, they brought 100% of themselves to the table. Right. And that meant all of their experiences, their most, their most hyperventilating intellectual experiences, <laughs> uh, but they also brought their, uh, what it felt like to live in the body, what it was like to have the parents that you happen to have, to have the schooling that you happen to have, and to have the erection or not get the erection right. that you happen to have. So that what's, what's fabulous, among other things, about Augustine is that he holds nothing back that way. He's, there's a huge body of work, starting, in this case, with the confessions, with his autobiography, but then it's all over the place in his other work, that suggests a lifelong grappling with his whole body and soul. It's even possible to say that, look, the story it's not that just that he seized upon the story. The story seized upon him. It's like a kind of weird <laughs> uh, inhabiting, like the movie Alien, where this thing in, burrowed somehow inside him and then spent its whole life inside him and picked up every possible detail in his being until it burst out of him and went on to others. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's a kind of weird vision of, of how central it was. But then, and then, you know, where his culpability is, you know, perhaps historically, though, is that he had an enormous influence on the way that people then interpreted that story and the way that it influenced culture going forward. Yes, for, for good know, and like, ill. He had a, he had a <laughs> remarkable idea uh, that was by no means a rabbinical idea, and it also was not, it's not to be found in Islam either, that what happened in the garden in that original moment, in the moment of transgression, was that our species became tainted. And he had to come up with an explanation. Well, how is this? How is, it, how is this transmitted? And he came up with the incredible idea that it's a sexually transmitted disease. That it's something about the way we're, it had to be something not, as it were, strictly speaking, um, uh, what looks like a culpable moral choice, but something built into our being. So what's built into our being that is transmitted to little infants, well, the way you're born, the way you're made, rather. We're all made through sexual intercourse. Now, now that's no longer true, but it was true up until, as it were, late last night. Right. Uh, and, 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 and so that's where Augustine began to focus. So it's located in pleasure, that sort of lust, specifically. Specifically lust, what, what he called uh, concupiscence. Right. And the, the, it's a technical term, really 
suggesting arousal. Which, you know, feels, um, I mean, you know, it's easy to elide things, you know, in a dangerous way, but when you're talking theology, but it feels Buddhist as well in the sense of the, the threat of desire, desire as the sort of engine that starts this process yeah. that locks humanity into this cycle it can't escape from. You that know? is interesting. I mean, it's entirely possible. I think people are now thinking that there's much more circulation of, of ideas in the world than we had imagined. We imagined that the East is East and the West is West. Right. But actually, to take Algeria, the place that Augustine lived from, right. uh, for much of his life, or for that matter, Rome and Milan, there's much more circulation, I think, than we had ever imagined. Plus, of course, the, the pagans had, through Stoicism, their own version of this dream of uh, an escape from, from the torments of, of desire, desire, the ability to become, to develop what the Stoics called apathia, apathy, right. which was a kind of flattening of affect as a way of freeing yourself from desire. Which Milton, in his own way, I mean, to, to, to open that part of your book up a little bit, the argument you make is that Augustine and others promote a literal interpretation of this story. There's sort of a battle going on for a while. Shall we read this metaphorically? Shall we read it literally? History comes down on the side of, of taking it literally. These things actually happened. These were real people. There was a garden, right? which then you feel Milton in some ways uh, takes that to its fullest expression, grappling with that, right? Yes, that's right. A lot of people took it on, but it's, it's a, a hard labor. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 and uh, Augustine knew it was hard labor. They weren't particularly more credulous in that period than, than any, anyone before or since. So Augustine knew perfectly well as a fantastically sophisticated hyper-intellectual that a story about a naked man and woman, a talking snake, and magical <laughs> trees was not easy to get your head around. It's right. the literal truth. Uh, and to insist that it was literally true was a fantastic burden. It took him 15 years and he wasn't able to succeed in writing the book on the literal reading of Genesis that he intended to write. He bequeathed that to his Christian world. And for more than a thousand years, people tried to do this. Uh, and it's really only, or at least so I am arguing, it's only in the Renaissance, partly in this case for, first of all, for technological reasons, that people develop the skill of representation in uh, painting and in sculpture right. to actually make things look naturalistic enough to convince you that they actually are real figures but, out there, they have bodies. Mm -hmm. But it was, it's unbelievably hard to do. It's also exciting. For the painters, it was incredibly exciting because they could paint naked bodies, which in, in, in the Christian world they couldn't, in the, in the Jewish or Muslim world, right, but right. they could actually look at the body in its naked state and represent it licitly as the body of, of the first parents before clothing right. uh, was invented. Right, right. And then, it's harder, actually, in the literary sense. There are some people in the Middle Ages who play with the story in a literary way, in theater and in performances and also in texts. But it really is, it took a kind of genius, uh, revolutionary madman like mm -hmm. Milton to actually think, I'm going to do it in poetry. I'm going to open the story up and give you the real Adam and Eve, uh, fill in this, the innumerable blanks that are in the page and a half version in Genesis, and I'll tell you the truth of the story, or rather, 
my visitor at night the muse. when I'm asleep, the muse is going to tell me what the truth is. Urania, yeah, Urania. came to him every night, he believes. Yes, yeah. not, a, not a bad visitor. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, you were, it, it, that's, that's fascinating. He dictated the whole thing, you know, in, in He would wake up in the morning, he, he would whatever. wake up in the morning, he would, yeah. I, pro he, I guess he would lie in bed for a while and muse over as were what, it, what the muse had told him. But then he would say to his amanuensis, Milk me, milk me, because yeah. uh, he was okay. blind right. and they couldn't write. But the amanuensis would come and, and write down the verses that he would recite. There's yes. a lot of you know guts in that. You know, it's it's yes, it risky. Is. I would it think. is. Uh, it's you know. incredibly risky, and no one was under a <laughs> theological obligation to do anything like that. On the contrary, okay. you were. You, it was better to to not to uh, ask uncomfortable questions. The Milton has uh, extreme version of the determination to work it out for himself, and his life was in ruins. What did he have to lose? Right, Everything right, had right. fallen apart right, for right. him. He, he was a revolutionary who had, whose revolution had failed. He should have been executed, really, after the uh, restoration uh, of the monarchy, and it took, we don't know exactly the mechanism, but it no doubt took very uh, strenuous interventions by friends, uh, Andrew Marvell, perhaps, uh, mm. John Davenant, who had friends in high places to get him off the list of people who were going to be executed. He should have been. Right. He had spoken out in favor of the, uh, of the execution of Charles, Charles I. First. The right. people whom they caught, who were still alive in 1660 when the Restoration, they executed, they tore apart. So he went into hiding for a while, and then he was able to come out of hiding. But he's a blind man. He's lost all his money. His Children hate him. Yeah. Uh, the revolution has failed. <laughs> gotcha. It's a mess. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. What, so, why, why not? Yeah, right. but, and then the muse starts coming to him. Incredible. And, and I guess the last thing before we get to the uh, surprise clips and the second half of the sh part of the show, um, Shakespeare never tried it. He never, there's, the, I'm not aware of much biblical. No. Work at all. I would all say two things. One is, I think of Shakespeare as, as <laughs> fundamentally, I mean, there's disagreement about this, but I think of Shakespeare as a fundamentally secular uh. artist and secular sensibility. So I think, in general, by temperament, by worldview, and so forth, he, there, there are virtually no uh, saints in Shakespeare. And when there is mm. someone who's saint like, namely Cordelia, she manages to bring destruction down on virtually everyone <laughs> in, in, in their world. Okay. Uh, so I think, in general, religious ideology is something that Shakespeare, uh, that gave Shakespeare hives. That's part one. Part two is, is there was no place for this. There was a place in the medieval stage for representing, in the, in the so called mystery plays, right. uh, representing Adam and Eve in uh, village performances, town performances. But by Shakespeare's time, these had been banned as ineradicably tainted by Catholicism, and there, there was no place for this kind of performance okay. in, in his business model, as and it were. Theater had a bit of a taint on it, generally. But yes, and they, they yeah. wouldn't have been encouraged. In fact, they might have been prohibited from messing around too much with, with anything that was that tainted with theology. For one thing, Adam and Eve would both have had to be played by men, which yes, would have been true. shocking, I suppose. And then there's something else <laughs> that, that's amazing about Milton when you think about it. Yeah. When Milton went about to, to do this, he had to invent the idea of a marriage, basically, as we now understand right. it. There's, there's nothing in Shakespeare. There, you know, there are the Macbeths, 
there's there's uh, Mr. and Mrs. Othello, but these aren't good models for, <laughs> for married couples. There's there's almost no representation in Shakespeare in a sustained way of what it's like to be a couple. Huh. And this comes out of That's a different worldview. It comes part, to some extent out of Puritanism, out of what the Puritans thought marriage was was about, and so forth. But and and in a, a, a different world. It's not that Milton, God knows, had great marriage experiences, but he. He needed to think about it. He needed to represent it. Right. And he basically, to my way of thinking, it's one of his most astonishing creative inventions is what it's like to be in a relationship with someone over a, a sexual relationship and a domestic relationship with someone over an extended period of time to make meals together, hmm. uh, to have dinner parties, as it were, in right. this case with an angel, to have an argument. Uh, but still love each other. And this is something that that uh, is not actually part of Shakespeare represents everything, it seems. This is one thing he doesn't much represent. Oh, that's really interesting. And there's much more to be said. And, you know, the, the I'm leaving out the entire wonderful part of your book that deals with the way that the discovery of the new world and, and you know, that, that essentially the way that the this literal interpretation uh, of the story was, in a sense, the seeds of its fall as it confronted modern science. Exactly. But uh, be but careful I, that you, you might be careful of what you get when you get what you want. Uh, <laughs> right. Making Adam and Eve real, making them seem as much in the flesh as you and I uh, are, made them vulnerable to skepticism in a way that they hadn't been when they were allegorical uh, figures. Um, so okay, moving on to the second part. Let's let's take a look at uh, these are short interview clips from Big Things Archives. They've been chosen by our video team. I don't know what they are. I think let's start with this. It's it's Salman Rushdie. Uh, it's been titled "Hate Violent Ideologies, Love the People Who Hold Them." That's being an intellectual. Well, look, I mean, I'm not uh, an advocate of, of political violence, even in virtuous causes, you know? So, so I'm not particularly a fan of the Antifa or of Black Bloc or those things. But um, there is no moral equivalence between neo-Nazis and people gathering to oppose them. You know, it, it's a, it's, it there simply isn't. Um, you, you can't say that people standing up against Nazism, white supremacism, and racism are the same as the people who are, in fact, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and racists. They, they, the, the moral equivalence doesn't exist. And I think everyone, except the occupant of the Oval Office, can see that. You know? And, and I th I've always thought that the great thing, and I think this is exactly where Dawkins comes out, is that you have to make a distinction between ideas and people. Uh, and, and that it, it's perfectly legitimate to express even vehement dislike of ideas and of belief systems, but not to turn that, it's not acceptable to turn that into bigotry against people who are part of those belief systems. You know? So you have to protect the person, but not protect the ideology. You know, I think that the nature of intellectual activity is that ideas are up for discussion, you know, and if I don't like your ideas, it's entirely proper that I should say so, you know, but, but for me to treat you in a bigoted fashion because I don't agree with you is not acceptable. So, you know, if, if, you, if you think the world is flat and I think you're an idiot, it's okay for me to say that, you know. I think we have to 
retain that ability, you know, uh, to be able to have open discourse about ideas and, and not to become afraid that we're offending somebody. I will say that when he says, if you think the world is flat and I think you're an idiot, then I should be able to say that, that seems to go against the idea of arguing against ideas rather than people. It does a bit. <laughs> but but I, I guess I, I also think yeah, it's a, I yeah, also yeah. think that it's a little <laughs> bit difficult to, how should we say, love the neo-Nazi in this account that we just think your neo-Nazi ideas are terrible, but you're a great person, I mean, or whatever. Or I, I'll defend to the death your right to be a neo-Nazi. I'm in that. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it, 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 I think it is relevant, though, in the question of, like, whether we let folks march, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, like, whether, you know, whether KKK marches are allowed, mm -hmm. which I would imagine, I don't, well, I'm curious, like, do you think that we should? I think, my guess is it depends on what the uh, situation is. That is to say, I don't mm. believe in, in universal and absolute freedom to do anything you want, including march around and scream racist epithets. If, for example, okay. it will provoke a riot and bloodshed, then I think actually it's not protected by, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, right, right. but I don't think that's protected by, by uh, our free speech. And I think that the kind of immediate acceptance of anything goes. Uh, I'm not a relativist anyway, in, in general, about these matters. So I don't, I also don't think that you, you can draw the line and stop everything from going on. But I understand why situationally, for example, why in Germany you can't go marching around shouting Hitlerian slogans is illegal. And right. do I think the Germans have a miserable democracy because they prevent this? No. I think they understand what, this, what their historical situation is and what they have faced within living memory and what they're not going to allow. So right. this is a, these are, are actually more complicated conversations, I think. Uh, of of course they have. are. And I, you know, and, and I know we don't have time to fully do them justice and we're not constitutional lawyers, but I, I do, I do want to unpack some elements of this, you know, in the time that we have, which, Let like, me just say yeah, that yeah. in relation to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is not, Adam and Eve mm. is a complicated story. It has, mm. it, it carries lots of baggage, including ferociously misogynistic baggage, as well as radically anti-science baggage. Mm. So, but I am definitely not of the school that thinks when I encounter people who even people who believe in the literal truth of the story, you're an idiot. I don't think that. That's not my response. My right. response is actually, not because I'm such a tolerant guy, but because I think the story is incredibly powerful. It's how interesting it is that in the face of so much evidence from geology, from, uh, from genetics, right. uh, that, that people would still cling to this archaic story as literally true. And I think that, not at all, because, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum of idiocy and intelligence everywhere on all sides of these matters. But I think in this case, it's a story that is irresistible for many people to explain all kinds of things in life. And that's one of the things that interests me about it. And yeah. I'm far from wanting to wag my finger and say, don't be ridiculous. This is something, and this actually gets me on to something interesting, which is that your fellow Harvard professor, E.O. Wilson, has just written a book about the origins of creativity, which <laughs> argues, one of its central arguments is that the humanities, like he's, he's praising the humanities to the skies, we need them, et cetera, et cetera, but they've very much lost their way because they are not rooted in biology and in science, and, 
I think there is this argument that being in love with stories is a dangerous thing. You know, that, that like what, yeah. I, I think there's a danger in that. Of course, you're, you're Wilson or you are entirely <laughs> right. But surely there's a danger. Dangers lie all over the place. There's danger in a certain kind of scientism without thought about the meaning. I have a friend right, right. whom I admire a great deal who was telling me about a project that he wants to do to do um, genetic testing on very young children who are identified early on as being incredibly intelligent. He wants to do it in obscure places like Burkina Faso and Chad and so forth so that you obscure in the sense that unprotected by our mechanisms. Ethical rules. Ethical rules right. Because he knows that this wouldn't be possible here. So I said, what do you mean you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? He said, oh, the Chinese are already way ahead of us. We can learn how to do this and we can start manipulating the, the, genetically to, to intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. So I take a deep breath and it's not that I automatically say this is the most horrible idea I've ever heard, it's a, but I want to say, could you maybe have a talk with some philosophers and, and, <laughs> and uh, humanists and not simply do this in your laboratory? Could you open up the windows a little bit? Because this is a very dangerous set of notions. So dangers lie all over the place. And it's not, the humanists don't have, how should we say, a monopoly on stupid ideas or dangerous ideas. Right, uh, right, they, right. They, uh, yeah, they yeah, need I to mean, be discussed. These worlds need. E. Wilson is which totally is indeed right. what Wilson well, is arguing. Which is completely to, right. You know. Not that 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 all art should now be how should we scient scientifically accurate and correct. I don't even know what that would mean. Right. But the but I do think it's important for not only art but for humanists, broadly speaking, to engage in a much more vigorous an informed way than we have engaged with science. One of the, not, not to, this is not tooting my own uh, book, but right. one of my, one of the reasons that I wanted, may seem odd to end my book in, as I do with chimpanzees right. and Gandas, I want to understand what the contemporary scientific origin story is that we think has displaced this ancient one, and I want to know what its implications are. And I think it's actually tremendously, first of all, I think it's fun, but also I think it's tremendously important if we want to understand the old stuff, too. Yeah, I mean, indeed, that, that's Wilson's argument, is that the humanities are too anthropocentric, that, that we're gazing at a mirror, you know, of, our, of ourselves, and that that only goes so far. I have, a, I have a friend, a very distinguished Indian scientist who works on social wasps. Okay. And what he does is to deftly kill as you can do with wasp communities, and you can't do with humans communities. He deftly kills the queen in these complicated social hierarchical social worlds of the of uh, these wasps, Rhodopelia or something rather. I can't remember the technical name. He kills the queen, then he sees who's going to take over. Uh, so he's interested in succession issues, uh -huh. and it turns out that the wasp hive knows. The entire hive knows who's going to take over, though he, it's unbelievably difficult to, for him to figure out. It's not like mm. the next biggest wasp in the colony, not at all. But they know. And if he takes a wasp and he puts that wasp in the, how should we say, the equivalent of the throne right. in the colony, if it's not the right one, which it almost never is, the rest of the wasps respond as if something rather confusing or embarrassing has happened. <laughs> and they, they don't get angry, but they just wait for, for that said wasp to go away so that the correct one can get on the throne. So they know, and they know up to three or four levels of killing their queens. Okay. okay, so I'm completely fascinated by this, and I had a discussion, formal discussion with him, in which we talked about Hamlet and King Lear and succession questions in the light of this work. Now, does it solve 
Shakespeare problems? No. <laughs> and does the Shakespeare problem solve the wasp problem? No. But there's something important about the world's not being... Shakespeare thought all his life in a deep way about succession and who takes over when the, right. when the throne is empty. And it's important that these conversations actually not be solely about about human beings, let alone about one particular late 16th century human being. <laughs> right, uh, right, that, right, right, right. We actually think about succession in broader and more interesting contexts. So I love this idea. I don't, I'm not afraid of it in the slightest. So... We're going to look at another one? Yeah, let's do one more and then, uh, and then wind it up. I think we have, we're, we're doing okay, right? Good, yeah, Contact? no, fine, okay, we're good. good. Fantastic. Next and last will be Virginia Heffernan, who is a cultural commentator, a science writer, writing about the internet. The internet isn't rotting your brain, it's the fullest expression of humanity, which is a bold claim. It is indeed. Uh, let's see. The book does have some pragmatic and concrete suggestions. The first is stop hating ourselves for, for, for participating in digital culture. You know, it's a real drag on the, our health and our immune system to spend our time on our phones or on, on our laptops or in other kinds of digital space using GPS technology, thinking that there's something wrong with us for doing it. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that the, that the book you know, ask, really asks people to do. Just for an hour or two, imagine the internet is not a neurotoxin. It's not causing brain damage. It's an opportunity and an opportunity to use wholeheartedly. Now each of the forms has its own constraints. So if you're using text online to show up to consumers or to um, meet your friends, then there are certain, there's certain considerations, and they're the considerations that poets have made sense of. So one of, the, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard said about how poets construct their, their sentences, their phrases, their, their, their lines, is that, and this is Helen Vendler, the great, uh, the great um, critic of poetry. She says that at every moment, after every word, any word can follow it next. And the reader should feel just a slight, slight micron intake of breath, like what could come next? So for companies showing up online, surprise, delight. How do you use that little space between words so that you don't, you know, say you are leveraging a cliche like at the end of the day, right? You, that you don't, um, maybe it's at the end of the millennium. Maybe it's a different word there other than day. You know, when you think of, of beautiful slogans that capture something in our minds, they're surprising. You know, they're delightful. They're, they're you, you know, oh, I didn't expect it to go in that direction. I wonder how you, you know, as a professor and as a thinker about the classical humanities, how do you relate to what you see in terms of the ways that that culture is changing as a result. I mean, the internet is, mm -hmm. is in a sense, old news now, uh, but not not culturally, not historically, right? Well, the sort of practical answer to that <laughs> question is that in my classes, if I'm given in a lecture course, it's true of a smaller course as well, I don't allow students to take notes on their computer. Why? I don't think there's anything wicked about computers, and I use them all the time myself. Uh, but I now I uh, I sat now already years ago in the back of a colleague's class to, as he asked me to 
watch a lecture he was giving, and I realized that that half the class was you know shopping in the J Crew catalog and and uh, sending uh, messages and so forth. And it's not that I think they're wicked for doing so, but I think that there's a use of though it's almost impossible not to do so. If I had my right. computer open in the department meeting, you can be sure that I'd be <laughs> doing 50 things other than listening to the meeting. So the first thing to say is that there is a particular culture of distraction in uh, this form. I'm, my mind is all over the place and I sort of like distractions, but there are moments in which you have to set the distraction aside. I mean, if you're trying to read, you know, Paradise Lost, yeah, you, you really would, cannot be having browsers it, open. Yeah, you can't. Like, I mean, you yeah. can't, <laughs> if you, or it changes, it changes the nature of the experience profoundly. So I do, without thinking it's a neurotoxin getting worked up about this, I do actually think that it's extremely hard to read in any traditional sense uh, to attend carefully to texts or images with 50 things going on at the same time. You can do lots of other things. You could probably land planes doing it, but I don't think you can actually <laughs> read poems uh, very well or, or actually complex texts. So that's the first thing to say. I'm also a believer in everything in moderation. I'm, I'm not planning to stomp on my, uh, my iPhone, but I do try partly encouraged by my uh, beloved wife, <laughs> not to take it out at the table, dinner table, in the middle of the dinner. I mean, that, that, uh, I think that it's a good thing to leave, leave it off for a bit. I try to get my, I'm a believer with my 16-year-old or when he was smaller with my uh, child to, in the idea of screen time, there's a certain time that it's good to do this, but mm. then there's time that it's good not to do this. It's yeah. not, if, I think that's true of everything. I think it, that it's not just a question of, the internet, though I think the internet does actually, despite what uh, she so cheerfully said, I think it actually is, I know from my life, quite addictive. And I'm old, I came at this old, <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't born into this technology, so I have, to, I have to tell myself, well, enough already, I mean, I should look do something else. I, I want to read Henry James's Ambassadors, and that means I have to put my computer aside. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's easy to say everything in moderation, but like very few of us are, for example, farming even in moderation yes. at this point, you know? Yes. So I wonder, you know, I have a 10-year-old or almost 10-year-old son, and as somebody who loves books and who wants to promote reading and so on, I, I do spend a certain amount of time wondering to myself, like, well, will there come a time when what people are doing, you know, in terms of that sort of thought and analysis is 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 dwelling much more in the realm of, of video and visual and just not you know they're just not mm -hmm. reading in the same sustained ways you know that like I I, I don't want to let give up that fight mm -hmm. but you know I guess I would say without being evangelical <laughs> about this uh, that I that you're not farming part of the time but I hope you grow house plants or, <laughs> or I hope that with your ten year old you've looked at beetles. Uh, sure. Sometimes, sure, uh, sure. that is, say you've done something that that is not virtual, yes. as it were. And I also would hope that you read out loud without we do. both <laughs> for yourself and for your child, because it's sweet and it's cuddly and it's a different way of relating to words and to stories than you could get even from a very clever you know, a device on the internet. I mean, it's no, a, that's right. I, it's a, but I also think it's a good thing. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you can do with digital technology that way in teaching. But I don't think for a second that that kind of technology will take the place of my sitting with my students and actually having a conversation with them about, I, th I think it's a different enterprise. 
Yeah, no, I certainly feel that way, and I certainly live that way as well. But you know, one sometimes feels oneself in a cultural bubble and wonder. You know, you hear stats thrown out about how much or how little people are actually reading, how reading is declining over I think it time, does. et cetera. I think it has. You know, I mean, I, I, it definitely know. has declined. I think the, the it, and not only statistically. I mean, I see it in my wonderful, brilliant students at Harvard, many of whom have, I think, much more difficulty reading intensely than, than my generation had because that they are also probably fantastically good at, at editing uh, visuals at, uh, right. so I, in a way that I couldn't to save my life. So I get that there are differences, but I do think it's important to hold on to this. Yeah, those, I mean, those things are not, yeah, those two things are not equivalent. And I think, yeah, we can't, we can't simply say that people are segueing from yes. one into the other, right? Yeah, I, 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 but I do also yep. think that the, that the, the shift that she made toward, <laughs> yeah, toward yeah. slogans, toward how to, how to make your, your sales slogan a little snappier, should give one pause a little bit. What are we talking about here? <laughs> I mean, that, that, uh, is, is, is it entirely instrumental, our relationship to human expressiveness? Is it all about selling something to somebody, really? That is a reality of what's going on. I'm not responding with horror. I'm just interested yeah, yeah. in the fact that the move is being made. Yeah, here. yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, that is say, or rather, we can get information. It just the information flow has to be in in multiple directions. I I was supposed to give a um, a presentation on leadership in Shakespeare to a, a group of middle management truck executives uh, from factories in India, uh, from a corporation that had sent their middle management to the Harvard Business School, and they wanted some entertainment in the afternoon, so I was the entertainment uh, from whatever they would normally do at the business school. So I came, I had a presentation with lots of film clips of leadership things from Shakespeare. Don't lead like Macbeth. Because like these are, well, mostly the negative leadership examples, you're absolutely right. But because these are people who are running truck factories in India, and because they're Indians, and Indians are often very, Voluble. I mean, they like to speak. It's not like addressing a group of uh, often uh, some groups like Japanese people are harder to Reticent get to speak quiet, uh, yeah. uh, this way. They immediately raised their hand and started the discussion in my first example. And I realized after about five minutes that they knew a hell of a lot more about leadership than I did. They were running <laughs> truck corporations. I mean, so actually they had amazingly interesting things to say, much more interesting than I had to say about the Shakespearean instances that I was talking about. Oh, and they were polite enough to think that, that I had some things to say myself. But that's what I would describe as a, as a more plausible way of engaging the business world with my world than, than uh, my trying to teach them how to make snappier slogans. Right, right. In some sense, it, it broadened both of your horizons, yeah, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Stephen Greenblatt, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Jason. It was really a great pleasure it. for me. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. It's been, the fall is a very busy time over here. It's publishing season, and it's when a lot of people have written interesting books and are ready to come around and talk about them. Uh, so I'm in high gear, reading constantly, um, recording conversations. And we have a really uh, cool lineup for you all this fall. Um, if you're liking what you're hearing and uh, you want to support the show, the best way you can do it is by rating or reviewing or both on iTunes or wherever you listen. Your reviews help drive the algorithms that help people to find the show on those platforms. So if you can take five minutes and do that, 
If you haven't before, I'd really appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who's done so before. And lastly, if you want to continue the conversation in a more personal way, join us online uh, at Facebook. Search for Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. That's our group. And request to join, and I'll, uh, I'll add you to the group. Okay, we'll be back next week with another great conversation. Hope you can join us.